0: So we are coming to the end of our sermon series uh, on the Patriarchs is our last one. And uh, we start in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham and God's promise to bless Abraham. And uh, we end here, uh, surprisingly, without really the fulfillment of those blessings. Um, You know from Genesis 12 that God has told Abraham he's going to make a great nation of him. And this nation will be filled with riches riches. You see a little bit of that in the way that they bury the body of uh, Jacob and Joseph up in uh, the promised land. But you don't really see much of the blessings. In fact, you end Genesis in Egypt uh, in a bit of a scary place. um, Because essentially the brothers are down there. Joseph uh, is dying. Jacob has died. Uh, The the next Pharaoh to come is not going to know Joseph. And they realize they're in a bit of trouble. And so Joseph says to them at the very end of the story... Uh, he says in verse 24, God will visit you. And that's really the key verse and the key word here is visitation. Uh, God, he says to the brothers, these are the, tw- these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the nucleus of the nation of Israel, which Genesis is all about this nation of Israel. Uh, it's kind of the preview to Exodus because now this nation of Israel is down in, in Egypt. And in Exodus, God's going to have to visit them and liberate them out. And so this, this is about visitation. Uh, A visitation from God, this last chapter in Genesis. In Hebrews 11.22, the writer says, By faith, Joseph spoke about the Exodus when he talked about God visiting. And indeed, in Exodus 4.21, it says, The Lord visited Israel. So that's that's a very key word, visited, in the story of the Exodus. Visited means God is going to swoop in. He's going to lift them out of Egypt. Like uh, on eagles' wings, he's going to bring them to the promised land through the desert, and he's going to settle them there uh, with all the blessings of Abraham. And so I want to look at this idea of uh, God's visitation. Because in many ways, this last phrase, uh, the last spoken words of Genesis 50, are the preview to the book of Exodus. So I want to look at God's visitation. And then, number two, the assurance that Joseph gives his brothers that indeed God will visit them, even though things look dark. So look at verse 26, the very end here. Uh, Joseph died at 110. They embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin. So it's a bit of a, a dire ending. Uh, if you're an Israelite, you're a little nervous at this point because you know that Joseph was the vice president of Egypt, and once he dies, who knows what the Pharaoh's going to do. He's in a coffin now. And so he's got no chance of influencing the powers that be. And indeed, indeed, when you get to the book of Exodus, it says a new Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And this new Pharaoh, he is very threatened by Israel because he sees that uh, even in Egypt, the promise to Abraham is working. And the Israelites are having tons of children. And it says the Hebrew women were vigorous, which means they were having lots of children, And they were therefore gaining in wealth and power. And the Egyptians got very nervous about that. And the Pharaoh decided to carry out a genocide, kind of the original Holocaust, where he began to kill the firstborn of all the Israelites. And they eventually put them in slavery and they started killing them. And that went on for 400 years. So before all of that happens, Joseph has already prophesied that God will come and eventually will visit them. He's going to liberate them. Again, verse 24, God will visit you. At some point, he will bring you up out of this land to the promised land that he swore. And that's the blessings that God swore to Abraham, the the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So think about the word visitation. I, I typed that in uh, Google, of course. It's, uh, it's a horror movie, as I expected. The Visitation. It's also the word that I just use when I've had these experiences with God, and a lot of you have told me that you've had them too, where you just really feel the presence of God actually physically, like you're shaking or you're sweating or your heart's racing or something like that. And I always refer to them as visitation. I don't know why, but I just think of God visiting me. But in the Bible, the, the word visitation or God visiting is used of a lot of characters. And it's always used of people who are in dire straits. Uh, People like Joseph, who was screaming in that pit back in his hometown of Dothan when his brothers threw them in there and left him for dead. That is where visitations happen, where God comes down into the pit and lifts us up and delivers us. So let me give you some examples. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, we saw this earlier this fall. She was barren, she was bitter with grief, She was angry with God. She was laughing sarcastically. And then it says in Genesis 21, 1, the Lord visited Sarah, and Sarah conceived. That's uh, an example of what visitation means when God visits people. Uh, He lifts them up, He comes to them, He meets them in their dire straits, and He gives them life. Another example Ruth. You know the story of Ruth? Uh, Ruth and Naomi are exiled in Moab because back in Israel there's a famine. And so they can't go back to Israel. The people are dying there. But then it says in Ruth 1.6, the Lord visited them and gave them bread. So again, life coming out of what looks like death. God visiting. And then in the New Testament, that word is used again. Obviously not the Hebrew word, but the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word. So there's a woman that Jesus meets and she's a widow. Her husband's just died. And all she has left is this teenage son who's going to care for her. And... He dies, so she's a widow, and her son has just died. And Jesus sees her walking in the funeral procession, and so Jesus, it says, looked at her, and then he raised. This is new; not happening. Um, So he looked at the widow. He saw the sorrow there. He came over to the um, he came over to the, the, the the pyre that they were carrying the son on. He touched the child, and he and he and he rose. He arose. And then all the people of of the town of Nain said, Surely God has visited us. It's a chorus. Surely God has visited us. So those are three examples of God visiting people. And you can imagine the anxiety of the brothers of Joseph. As I said, Jacob is uh, dead now. Joseph is dying now. They say that we're stuck in Egypt, they're saying to themselves. We have no advocate anymore. How are we going to get out of this? They can see the whole... Uh, Exodus story coming. And so they're terrified. And it's like Israel at the Red Sea when the Pharaoh and all his chariots are coming and they're pinned in and the Red Sea is in front of them and chariots and Pharaoh and behind them and they're stuck there and they have no idea how to get out of it. There's no way to whiteboard themselves out of that. There's no plan they have. And that's where God has to come and visit them. And you should ask yourself have you been in places where God has visited you? And are you in a place right now where you need him to visit you and you've forgotten that he does that kind of thing? Because I can tell you, I've been in places recently where I saw no way out. It was like a boxed canyon. One of those canyons where there's no way out and you're stuck. And a pit that was very deep. It was so deep that I saw no way that God could ever find me there. Much less rescue me out of there. Where relationships are so torn apart that there's no hope of repair. That's where God comes and he visits He brings life. So again, where are you doubting that God could visit you? Because I can guarantee you, you're not in a place that's any worse than where Joseph's brothers were. And Joseph said, God will surely visit you there. God will lift you up. God will bring you out and he will give you life. Verse 24. So that's what a visitation is. That's the first thing I wanted to say. But I want to now look more in depth at this reassurance that Joseph gives them, that he will indeed visit them. Because I love this part of the story. Um, Somebody asked me last week, they said, isn't this the exact same thing we looked at a week ago? Where we talked about how God was providential, even the darkest events. And we talked about how uh, Joseph said to his brothers, you sold me into slavery in Egypt, but God brought me here to preserve life. We talked about that. There were three verses last week where that same idea occurred, where They did something that was evil, that was intended for evil, and then God used that to bring about good. And we see that again here. So somebody asked me, isn't this the same thing as last week? And and I said no, because the context is totally different. So look at the context here. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers... Now, if you don't know much of the story, these are the guys who tried to kill Joseph. They're still a little bit squirrely about Joseph's attitude towards them. So when, when they see that their father died, they assumed that the only reason Joseph was treating them nicely was because their father was still alive. And they assumed it may be that Joseph will hate us now that our father is dead. And so in verse 15, they say, he is going to pay us back for all the evil that we did. Um, they, they, they think that he's going to kill them now. Because... Jacob's not around to protect them. And again, uh, another friend of mine who I was talking about this passage with, uh, he said, this, this makes me doubt the whole narrative of Genesis that it's historically accurate. Because he said, how is it that a week ago they were reconciling, they were falling on each other's necks, they were hugging, uh, they were talking for hours. You remember that last week? They had reconciled it was this beautiful family hug and they were uh, lavishing gifts on one another. And, and this guy said, how is it that now uh, these same people are terrified that Joseph's going to kill them? And this guy just said, I don't believe that Genesis really is accurate. It seems like they are, the, the writer just forgot that, that he had written that earlier. And I said, no, I think that's actually, that's the human condition. That's the very point that Mo- Moses is making here is that the, the way that mistrust and doubt creeps up in our hearts is kind of shocking. Uh, if you think about the way that when you your drift, the, the way that my car just kind of lists to the right, when I, let, when I let go of the wheel, my car just drifts to the right. And when you let go of the wheel, your doubts are just gonna take you off, away from a person. You never, your inertia never takes you to trust someone more. You notice that? Your inertia never takes, your inertia always takes you towards doubt. And that has been going on in these brothers' mind, um, this distrust. The, the mistrust is so deep that they concoct this ridiculous plan. It says they sent a message to Joseph in verse 16. So they don't even want to talk to him in person because they're so scared of him now. So they send a messenger, and they, they, they have uh, some, some poor guy takes this message to Joseph, and it's like scrawled on a little card. And it says, yeah, we found this in, uh, yeah in Dad's top drawer. We found this little card here. And here, look at it. And it's kind of scrawled out, maybe in Simeon's handwriting. I mean, Joseph sees right through this. And it says, the card says, or whatever it was, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For some reason, I think of the Chick-fil-A cows, you know, that write that uh, message, and it's kind of misspelled. Like, a ridiculous plan that Joseph immediately sees through, and notice his reaction to it. And this is very perceptive on the part of Moses, the writer. It says that he wept. As soon as I started talking to him, he's like holding this note. He's like, what, what is this? Do you still doubt me? After all that I went through to show you how much I loved you and to, and to cause you to repent and then to reveal? It took me so long to hold, to reveal myself to you. I held back for so many, many months. And now you're giving me this note and he wept. It was grievous to him. I don't know if you've ever wept because you saw the, the mistrust in someone's eyes. But there's nothing you can do to stop someone from mistrusting you. It's really painful. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, I see this. I see the way that, that we hurt each other, that you hurt each other. And um, something like, well, she didn't reply to my email. And what does that mean? And I'm starting to think that she doesn't like me. Or he... He sent me this text and it was kind of cold. There were no exclamation points at all. And he didn't heart my text. He just liked it. And we just read into these little tiny things and we begin to create a narrative in our head of mistrust, which is exactly what happened to these brothers. They began to mistrust. You know, she didn't even even make eye contact with me at church. I don't know what she was signaling there, but she clearly did not, intentionally did not make eye contact with me. And these brothers are probably telling each other, you know, Joseph seems kind of distant lately. And I wonder if he's thinking about us in some way. And it, his tone of voice the other day just struck me wrong. And I, and I really think that uh, he has it in for us. And he's been giving me this look lately that's just unnerving. And they begin to concoct this narrative that he wants to kill them. They started thinking the only reason he had not killed them was Jacob. And if you're Joseph, you're just like, how do I overcome this level of mistrust? Will my brothers, who I love ever trust me. And so you have children where you just wonder, will they ever trust me? They just don't seem to ever trust me. And what can I do? How do you overcome mistrust? It's like some kind of malignant growth that will not stop. That just keeps coming back over and over and over again. And you try to heal it and you apply healing to it. It just keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. How do you overcome this mistrust? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do is you you don't frighten someone. You don't yell at them I can't believe you won't trust me because that will only further deepen the mistrust. And you don't threaten them. If you don't trust me, I'm going to crush you. You know, that's not going to help the trust level at all. And so what actually Joseph does is he, after he weeps, he gathers himself and he, verse 21, he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. And I can tell you that if someone doesn't trust you and you find out they don't trust you, the only way that you're going to help is to speak kindly and to comfort them. Now, you've got to speak the truth. You've got to tell them, there's no reason to mistrust me. But it's got to be done with this tone of voice where there's kindness, there's comfort there. And the speech that he gives, one, uh, one commentary said, this is the pinnacle of Old Testament faith. This is like the very essence of what it means to be an Old Testament saint. And what he tells them is, I imagine, what he told himself. For all of those years in prison, all those years in Potiphar's house as a slave, he just kept telling himself, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Why? Because there was constant fear just welling up in his heart. Always always driven to anxiety and then not fearing, don't fear, don't fear. So this is a hard-won truth. There's not a, a, a pious platitude. But he says to them in verse 19, Don't be afraid. Again, kindly, with comfort. And then again, at the end, it's like a sandwich. He says, So do not fear. Do not fear, verse 19. Do not fear, verse 21. And then right in the middle is what uh, this commentary said is the kind of the essence of, of Old Testament faith, which is this. And this is, this is just like last week's sermon. Um, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about abundant life. And you might think, well, I know other situations of evil that are worse than this situation of evil, and so God couldn't mean them for good. And I would just say back to you, I don't think so. I don't think you can think of a scenario of evil that's a whole lot worse than what Joseph went through. And so you can't take some example, some hypothetical of something that happened to you or a friend and say it's, it's more evil than that. And so God couldn't mean that for good. No, this is evil. Um, this is deep evil. And in the, in the Old Testament, the way that the saints perceived reality, the way that the Hebrew saints perceived reality was that God is in control of everything. And that whatever happens here, all the evil, God intends for good. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis. There's a reason that that Genesis ends basically with this line when it began with the fall in the garden where Adam and Eve rebelled against God and therefore were destroyed by it. And the whole earth was shattered by it. This entire creation fell into groaning, decay, and futility. All the animals, the plants, everything, entropy, came about through that first fall of our initial parents, Adam and Eve. And you say to yourself, how could God have ever let that evil happen? That's That's the great question of the skeptic is how in the world could God ever let that happen, that primeval evil of the fall? And at the end of Genesis, we see somehow God will be using even that event in the garden for good. And we don't know how yet. And even even when Moses died, he didn't yet quite know how that would happen. But he did say, what you meant for evil, God Will mean for good, to bring about abundant life. That's why it's good. He's going to bring life back to the planet. This is even applying to the, the mistrusts. Even the brothers mistrust. Even that, even in that moment when they're mistrusting him, the wickedness of that mistrust, Joseph's saying, even that, brothers, God will use to bring good, to bring life. All of our evil. Romans 8:28 is the, the definitive statement in the whole Bible. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him. doesn't mean he causes the evil, but it says that God will cause all of the evil, everything to work together for the good of those who love him. So that's that's Genesis 50, 20 in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love him. Like I said last week, that doesn't mean we, we don't wail and weep and mourn. Remember what I said about the scream, you know, when Joseph just... He, he screamed so loud that the Pharaoh's household heard about it. But um, this, having said that, the, the visitation that is promised by God here is so absolutely massive and unbelievable that Joseph repeats it twice. In verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. Long pause. They're looking at each other. I can't believe it. And Joseph's like, no, trust me. God will surely visit you. Verse 25. So he repeats it. I'm about to die. God will visit you. No, he will surely visit you. And then he makes them repeat it. You've got to say it too, brothers. Verse 25, he made the sons of Israel swear. And then generation after generation of slavery in Egypt and genocide and the Holocaust in Egypt. Over and over they keep saying God will visit us. God will visit us. He will bring us out. He will lift us up. And this actually is the most repeated idea in the entire Old Testament. It's like the gospel of the Old Testament. He will come and he will lift us up. He will, he will bring about another exodus. And every week we come to this table, and some weeks we're, we're feeling a lot more assurance than others. I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe you don't feel any assurance. Maybe you're not planning to come, which is fine. Uh, if, you don't, if, if you're in a place where you don't feel like you can come up here, then um, we welcome you not to. And that takes a lot of integrity, and I really admire that. Um, but, but maybe you have just a tiny bit of assurance um, maybe you've, you've done something really bad this week maybe you lost your temper uh, you lashed out, you cheated on someone you cheated on a test, you got drunk, you did things you never imagined you could do whatever it is um, you might be feeling a lot of lack of assurance and you don't know if you should come up here and I will say this, that what is constant about this table is not your ability to grip the, the bread and the wine but it's God's ability to hold you And this table is about God gripping a hold of you. And then he has you. And he assures you at this table, whatever you did, whatever you meant for evil, I will turn that into good. I will turn everything into good. And this table shouts at our doubts and our fears, God will visit you. He will visit you here. He will surely visit you. We love these rascals.